Our scripture reading today is Revelation 17, 1 through 6. You'll find this on page 1037 in your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, please take the one there from us as a gift. Revelation 17, 1 through 6. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery. Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Risa. Well, good morning. Welcome to Christ Community. Uh, if this is your first Sunday with us, you may have heard that scripture reading and thought, wow, what did I just get myself into? Um, we've been going through the book of Revelation, which has uh, some very vivid images in it, as you uh, can tell from that text. And we're going to dive into it and try to make sense of those and what uh, God is saying to us through uh, these texts this morning. Um, but before we do that, I uh, wanted to take a moment and just share with you some uh, exciting news here. And that is that uh, starting in December, we will be adding a second service again on uh, Sunday mornings. So um, we are, this service, our single service right now at 10 a.m., fills up uh, just about every single week. And so I know many of you um, who are, have been with us regularly sometimes haven't had a chance to be with us because it's been full. Uh, so we wanted to add more space kind of in the Advent season of December, starting in December, of making more room in the end for more folks to come and be with us on a regular basis. And so, again, that's starting in the month of December. Uh, December 6th will be the first Sunday where we'll add a second service. There'll be our, you know, our times that we had before, 9 a.m. and 10.45. So you can know that children's ministries will continue through the month of December to only be on the first and third Sunday. So that will be December 6th and then December 20th. We'll have children's programming. But then starting in January, we're going to have children's programming every Sunday at the 1045 service. So just a little bit on that again. Uh, starting in December, two services, 9 a.m. 1045. In December, we will still only have children's on those uh, first and third Sundays, but January, every Sunday at 1045, we'll have children's programming. So again, this is good news. If you've had weeks where you've wanted to come and be with us and it's been full, um, hopefully we'll have uh, more space available and uh, more opportunity to, to be together to welcome new guests and uh, welcome those back uh, who maybe have been with us online and 
are looking for a chance to come back and be with us in person. So uh, with that too, I will mention, um, as always, uh, when you add and expand, we need more people to help and to serve. And so uh, there's a way on the sign-up form, you've probably seen it, you all signed up and we're here this morning, where you can let us know if you're interested, available, and serving in a particular area. So I'd encourage you in future weeks as you sign up, um, if one of those areas is something that interests you, please uh, check those. We'll follow up with you. Also, just let me encourage you, if, uh, if Holly or uh, Anna Lynn or Taylor or someone, anyone on our staff, Casey, myself, reaches out and says, hey, would you help us to serve in some particular area? I mean, really consider saying yes to that for two reasons. One, uh, we've really thought and prayed about the people who we think God is calling to serve in particular roles. And so we're, if ask, if we're asking you, um, it's because we really think that you would be a great fit in that spot. And two, um, it's a way to provide room for more people to be with us, uh, to be a part of the mission uh, in the midst of that. So uh, again, good news, second service starting in December, and we'll go forward from there. Well, let me, as we transition to uh, this passage that Risa read for us, let me pray and we'll begin. Father, we are grateful that you have uh, inspired your word, that you've preserved your word, that you've given it to your church, um, as a gift. And even when we have texts that are maybe uh, hard or shocking, uh, like this one, um, we're still grateful. And we just ask all the more for your spirit to help us to understand and apply and to be obedient to Jesus this morning. We pray this in his name, by the power of the spirit who lives within us and who has made us new. Amen. Well, I wanted to begin this morning with a question, and that is, what do you think is the more kind of pressing moral issue of our moment, um, of these three? And these are kind of perennial ones, but uh, money, sex, or power? Money, sex, or power? Of course, we have Lord Acton's dictum about power tending to corrupt and absolute power corrupting absolutely. I think in this season of, of political conversation, we're aware of the potential um, for power to go wrong, right? We're, we're aware of that power. I, I think anyone who's been in a, a romantic relationship of any kind or uh, has been through a bad breakup or has been cheated on or rejected in a romantic relationship or abused in a relationship knows the, the power, the danger potentially that comes along with sexuality and romance. But what about the economy? What about money? Is that really a, a, a pressing moral issue? I mean, isn't money really just a, a tool? Isn't the economy just that sort of bland, opaque thing that your, your dad used to complain about when you were a kid? But what if our quest for financial security was a pressing moral issue? What if money and the economy are actually one of the most pressing moral issues of our time? What if that quest for financial security could actually be as dangerous to your soul as visiting a prostitute? What if the Amazon app on your phone could be as dangerous to your formation as Pornhub? or your retirement account as threatening to your discipleship as the golden calf was for the newly liberated Israelites in the desert. Now, I know even 
saying that seems a little bit ridiculous. It feels a little bit ridiculous saying that to you. How could that be? And yet, that is the exact imagery that we get here in Revelation chapter 17 and 18 that God inspired John to write about money and the economy. We're going to unpack that today, but two things are clear in these chapters. One, that financial security is not enough. And two, that financial security at the expense of faithfulness is spiritual adultery. That's the image that that John picks up on here. And friends, financial security will never be enough. It will never be enough. And financial security pursued at all costs is idolatry, is adultery. That's what John is trying to get through to us. But the allure of financial security and prosperity is seductive. Why? Because money so easily seems to be the solution to our problems. And it's so easy to get into the mindset of thinking, if I could have just a little bit more, then I would be happy. Or then I could rest. Or then my marriage would be better because we wouldn't always be fighting about how to spend the money. If we just had a little bit more, then it would be okay and we could pay the bills. If I had just a little bit more, then I wouldn't have to worry about retirement or old age because I, I, I know I'd be secure. And even if I didn't have friends or family nearby to take care of me, I could afford to pay for care. But financial security will never be enough. And financial security at all costs ends up being idolatry and adultery. And today we're going to see three truths here in these chapters that can set us free from the seductions of financial security. And the first one is this. The first truth is that we have to embrace the reality that we are being seduced by financial security, by material comfort, by economic prosperity, by luxury. These things are seductions. They're trying to draw us in. And that's why you get this image uh, that John uses here of the great prostitute, the the, the whore of Babylon, as, as the King James Version would bring it across. Take a look again at those verses, and notice as we do, because again, they're, they're a bit shocking, but notice the language of opulence and luxury juxtaposed with the language of sexual infidelity here. This is verse 1, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. And with the wine whose sexual immorality the dwellers on the earth had become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on the scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, this picture of luxury, and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. And holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and impurities or sexual immorality. Again, this purple, the scarlet, the gold, the jewels... They're pointing to the luxury and the financial prosperity of Rome, who is again in these passages in Revelation referred to as Babylon. So if you remember, we've been looking at Revelation, and even last week we talked about this, that often throughout the book, Revelation, uh, or Rome rather, is referred to as Babylon, that that's how it's described and talked about. 
as being Babylon. And really, though, the language of Babylon, as you trace that theme throughout the Bible, really from Genesis chapter 11, with the Tower of Babel on through, is just a stand-in for any human empire, any human government that is opposed to God and what He's doing in the world. Whether that's Egypt enslaving the Israelites, Assyria, or Babylon, or Persia, or Alexander the Great, or any of the other numbers of rulers and governments that have risen and fallen over the past 2,000 years of church history. And again, in chapter 18, verse 2, we get the cry that we looked at last week, which is, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Babylon is always a picture of power and wealth and security. But Babylon is also always pictured as a doomed project, as a project that has an expiration date, as a project that is coming to an end. But empire is always seductive. It's always alluring. And listen to these phrases, again, from chapter 18, and how wealth and power come together. This is 18 verse 3, the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her, that's Babylon's luxurious living. She glorified herself and lived in luxury. All who had ships, verse 19, at sea grew rich by her wealth. Rome and empires before and after her produced incredible wealth and luxury. Incredible wealth and luxury. And just to be clear here in this moment, creation of wealth in and of itself is not evil. In fact, uh, to the contrary, when you look back to the very beginning of the biblical story in the opening chapters of Genesis 1 and 2, part of our calling as people made in God's image is to be productive and and procreative, to fill the earth, to draw out its riches, to produce wealth and beauty, to expand the garden. So just the idea of creating wealth and multiplying wealth and goodness is not necessarily in of itself evil. It's actually part of our calling as humans, but it has gotten distorted by the fall and twisted. And that's what we see here in Revelation about what has happened in Rome and in Babylon is that what is underneath the wealth that Babylon has produced is the oppression of many for the sake of the indulgence of the few. Now, it's important to remember, again, as we look at how John is describing these things in the book of Revelation, that the economy in the first century is very different than our economic system today. In the first century, the economy was very much a fixed pie kind of scenario, right? You had, it was tied to land, to physical assets, it was a fixed pie. And so in that sense, it was almost like an economic teeter-totter in the first century. When one group of people, city uh, got wealthier, uh, someone else was necessarily getting poorer because that land was being taken or divided in a different way or exhausted. Now, that's not the same kind of economic system that we live in today. The modern economy is not a fixed pie because wealth is, is created beyond finite physical assets like land. And yet, this is what's so key. The economic idolatry that is described here is not tied to any particular economic system or any historical moment, but rather to the fallen human heart that makes financial and material comforts an idol. That's what we need to hear from these texts this morning. And friends, it will never be enough. Financial security will never be enough 
And in fact, it can easily seduce us and draw us away from our Creator, which is why John uses such vivid images here. I'm convinced that's why he turns up those metaphorical images so loudly here, because John is trying to make us see that greed is as hideous as cheating with a prostitute. Pastor Tim Keller from New York City has a line here that always gets me. He pointed out on a talk once that the problem with greed, the problem with kind of the economic idolatry, is that it's really hard to know when you sort of cross the line into it. And, and, and this is the statement that he makes. He says, you know when you've committed adultery, right? It's like you don't, you're not laying in bed with someone who's not your spouse and realize, oh my goodness, wait, you're not my spouse. Like, you know when you've crossed the line of that. You're not late at night swiping through Tinder and you're like, oh wait, this isn't my Hy-Vee Isles online account. <laughs> no, you know when you've crossed those lines. But how do you know when you've begun to spend too much, consume too much, place your hope in security of financial accumulation? I mean, maybe there could be some signs like credit card debt or a car loan that's eating up a massive part of your paycheck each month that you can't really afford. But sometimes it's really hard to know. When have we crossed those lines? And here's what I'm beginning to learn more and more in my own life, is that usually (laughs) the issue comes with our finances, not so much in what we are doing with our money, but in what we're not doing with it. (laughs) That the problem is not so much what, what is in my budget, but what's not in my budget. The fact that I, I don't have margin to save more or to be more generous. It's not, again, this is the hard thing. It's not that there's anything in my budget that's, that's just evil, but that all the margin sort of gets soaked up and there's no room left over for giving and saving in the kinds of ways that would honor God's design. And it's a picture of I'm trying to satisfy, trying to soothe something in me with finances that can't be solved in that way. That's the idol that Revelation 18 is taking on. Now, I want to read to you, uh, this is a a commentator um, who writes in a series that talks specifically about uh, faith and work in the scriptures. This is really powerful. It's a little bit longer quotation, but I I want to read it out to you in in full. So just, just soak this up. It says, the lesson that God would judge a city for its economic practices is a sobering thought. Economics is clearly a moral issue in the book of Revelation. The fact that much of the consumption appears to stem from self-indulgence should hit with particular force at modern consumer culture. But the most worrisome thing of all is that Babylon, this is so powerful, the most worrisome thing of all is that Babylon looks so close to the new Jerusalem. God did create a good world. We are meant to enjoy life. God does delight in the beautiful things of earth. And this is, listen to this, if the world system were a self-evident cesspool, the temptation for Christians to fall to its allures would be small. It is precisely the genuine benefits of technological advance, 
and extensive trading networks that constitute the danger. Babylon promises all the glories of Eden without the intrusive presence of God. It slowly but inexorably twists the good gifts of God, economic exchange, agricultural abundance, diligent craftsmanship into the service of false gods. It's that second line, the second to last line that gets me every time I read this quote, that Babylon promises all the glories of Eden without the intrusive presence of God. But Eden without God isn't Eden. It's death. Which brings us to our next truth this morning from this passage. You know, so the first is that we are being seduced. The second is that the seduction is deadly. The seduction is deadly. It is a fatal attraction. Don't be enticed by the allurements. Our economic world is a battleground for our souls, and the stakes are life and death, and not only spiritual, kind of the spiritual life and death in eternity, but physical life and death even now here in the present. Listen to how the the grief of those who have trusted in Babylon for their financial security is described in chapter 18. This is 18, verse 11. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold and silver and jewels and pearls and fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves. That is human souls. And scholars have pointed out that this list in Revelation 18 is one of the most extensive lists of trade goods from the first century ever found in any historical document. That tells me a couple of things, but one of the things it tells me is that God, this is inspired by God in his word, God really cares about the economy. He really cares about markets and trading because they affect human flourishing and human well-being and the creation. They're a vital part of humans and creation flourishing or not. And did you notice in that place of emphasis in the final item on the list, the trade of slaves. And then to clarify so we don't miss it, that is human souls. Economic seduction costs exactly the price of human lives. And let me just give you two quick examples of that in our own time. I mean, obviously, slavery continues to exist in lots of different forms in our world today, but let me give you two other examples of how financial security costs the lives of human souls. Uh, First is the example of abortion. And before I say anything else about that, let me just say, I know for some of you listening this morning, abortion may be a part of your story. And if it is, I just, I want you to know this morning that I can only begin to imagine the emotions that that would bring up. And maybe you've had, been in a place where you've urged someone else to receive an abortion. In such desperate circumstances, such pain. But please know your church family loves you. Your pastors love you. We, we're not here to judge you, but to walk with you in whatever's happened in your life. 
The fact remains, though, that abortion is incredibly lucrative in our country, both historically and presently. And historically, in particular, it has been concentrated in lower income and minority areas. The wealth created by it has been built on the poorest communities in our country. And even more recently, in 2018, Planned Parenthood reported almost $245 million in excess revenue over expenses. Which, what does that mean? It means that Planned Parenthood is not a, a for-profit organization, but it means that after they paid all their bills in 2018, they still had almost $245 million left over. That's a very profitable venture. Another way that this has cost human lives is racism. Racism is also connected to, and in many ways, the result of greed. Race-based slavery was not the result of racism. Rather, racism was born of as a justification for the enslavement of people to provide free labor. And Pastor Crawford Loritz, who has been an amazing pastoral voice in the area of race and racial reconciliation for decades, recently said in a Gospel Coalition podcast, this was so insightful, he said this, he said, racism would not exist apart from the sin of greed. Greed is the fuel that drove racism. Greed was the dominant driving force that justified slavery in our country. And the effects of that continue today, right? Even more recently, in the past 50 or 60 years, the, the redlining and blockbusting real estate practices, again, driven by greed, have concentrated poverty in areas that are now the places with the highest murder and violent rates, the place that are most adversely affect by the, affected by the pandemic and by the uh, economic effects of the pandemic. So, so why do I share all that this morning? Uh, well, not to make us feel guilty or to make us feel ashamed, but just to open our eyes to the deadly effects, the deadly effects of economics when it goes wrong, of economic systems that are distorted by greed. The economy and economic systems are not neutral. They are not a, a, a little part of our lives, and they have the potential to be deadly, to cost human souls, to cost human lives, the souls of those oppressed by greed, as well as those who are caught up in oppressing others with greed, right? And here's the thing, friends. Greed goes all the way back to the garden. The serpent Babylon has always been about the allure of just a little bit more, as well as sowing within us a mentality of scarcity that says, I must accumulate because there's not enough to go around. And that mentality of scarcity makes the ends of financial security and comfort justify any means, even the trafficking in human souls. So friends, we are being seduced by the allurement of financial security, and that seduction is deadly. But there is something better. Financial security will never be enough, but there is something better, something better coming. And that's our third truth today, that the wedding is better. The wedding is better. Our quest for security that led to greed started with the enticement to eat in the garden, right? Take the fruit. Eat the fruit. You can have just a little bit more. And the freedom from greed and idolatry also starts with an invitation to feast. The wedding feast of the Lamb. Listen to these verses in chapter 19, 
Verse 6, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory, for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, the fine linen that is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. What a contrasting picture to what we read in those opening verses of chapter 17. There is a, a seduction that is out there to find our hope, to find our satisfaction in financial security. We are being, being enticed, told the elusive promise of financial security or material prosperity will somehow numb or heal the fear, it will heal the ache, will make us happy. But that seduction will only kill you and it will only harm others along the way. And the only way out is to make something else, something better, ultimate in our lives. Because consumption and financial security, they are pseudo-joys. But finding true joy in Jesus and in relationship with his family, the church is the only way out of the arms of the prostitute, is the only way out of greed and economic idolatry. Because friends, you can't miss this this morning. You live in a deeply broken world. a world that has hurt you. You can't be a human being in a world that is so damaged as ours and not be hurt. And because we are wounded, every single one of us, there is a deep pain, a deep ache. And we, ha we have to cope with that in some way. We have to find some way to comfort that. You have to. Of course you do. It's unbearable. The human condition in a fallen world is unbearable. And the enemy whispers that if you just follow after him, that he'll give you something that will soothe the pain, that will ease the pain. It's the root of all addiction. That low joy leads us to pseudo-joys, which, which lead us to turn good things into ultimate things, that lead us to addiction, which is using God's gifts to, to meet needs that only He can meet. And when we feel that lack, when we feel that longing, that emptiness, they, they are pointing you to a need. To be human is to be in need, in need of God and others. That's not, a, that's not something wrong with you. That is what it means to be a human me, but, a being. But when we try to meet that need with, with stuff, with financial security, we turn in on ourselves, we turn away from God, we turn away from others, which leads us to lower joy, which leads us to more pain, more isolation, more loneliness, which leads us into only needing more stuff. And the cycle goes on. The wedding is better. Only joy in Jesus can satisfy and heal that hurt, that wound that all of us have. So how do you fight against pseudo-joys and fight for the real joy? To kind of come out of the arms of this false joy of financial security. Let me give you just, just three ideas here to kind of how to fight for that. One is this, simplicity. 
to practice the discipline of simplicity. And, and simplicity sometimes it gets confused with, I think, with minimalism, which, you know, is the design style as well as kind of a, maybe a, even kind of a movement and, and cultures just have less stuff. It's not bad, but simplicity is a, has been a, dis, a discipline in the, in the Christian church for a long time. It's simply about using, needing, wanting, craving less, being content with less. Now, Christians have long recognized there are two kind of equal and opposite errors when it comes to finances. And one of those is, is the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel says that if you just have enough faith, that God will bless you with great material and financial wealth here and now. If you just believe, and especially if you just send money to that televangelist, that you are going to have that super nice car and super nice house, that's, that's the prosperity gospel. And that is a distortion of the good news of Jesus. Another error, though, and this is one we have to be careful with when we're thinking about simplicity that has also happened, is what I call the, the, the poverty gospel, which is almost a repudiation of all wealth, of all money, of all material things. But neither of those are what the picture we get in the Bible. The picture we get in the Scripture is that God has created a good world. He's given good gifts for us to enjoy. So we don't sort of give away everything and, and just go around begging from others. That's not the poverty gospel. is not what the Bible teaches. Simplicity isn't about either of those things. Rather, it's simply on being content and learning to be content with less rather than more. Simplicity, this is one practical example. Simplicity is always on the lookout for how just one more subscription begins to eat away, right? You've got Disney Plus and Hulu Plus and Walmart Plus and Amazon Prime and Stitch Fix and BarkBox and the subscription business model, right? It can just slowly eat away at your paycheck. And you sign up for it for one month for free, and then it just starts clicking through, right? Look at the subscriptions that you have. Could you cancel one or pause one for a month and just see how it goes? Maybe you don't need Netflix, Disney Plus, Amazon Prime, and Hulu Plus all at the same time. And again, if you have, it's not wrong, I'm just saying, what if you pause one of those subscriptions for a month? Would you really miss it? And again, it's less about the six or eight or ten dollars a month that you get back in your checking account, but it's saying, can I be content with less? Okay, I'm done meddling with your entertainment choices now. <laughs> Second, intentionality. Do you tell your money where to go or do you wonder where it went? Do you tell your money where to go, or do you wonder where it went? Pastor Andy Stanley has said, everyone ends up in life somewhere, or ends up somewhere in life. A few people end up there on purpose. As followers of Jesus, we cannot just afford to go with the flow when it comes to money and the economy. The price is too high, as we've seen. It costs lives, human lives. We have to be intentional to make a budget, to track your spending, to grow in your awareness of what you buy and don't buy and how it affects others in our independent, global-related economy, right? We often don't think about that, but your choices of where you spend your money, how you spend your money, what you, it, it affects people across the globe because things are built and made and harvested and sourced across our entire world. Our neighbor, in ways like no other time in history, truly is 
people all around the world. And we can make choices that intentionally help and love and serve the vulnerable in our neighborhood and in our global community with how we spend our money or how we don't spend our money. Again, even things like the mutual funds that we invest in and buy in, are there companies in those funds that are actually doing practices that harm others? Do we know what our money and funds are paying for? The point is, it's it's not neutral. We need to pay attention. And don't get me wrong, this is not just about hoarding money in a mattress, right? Spending and exchange are good. They create value. Just get in the habit of asking, how will this purchase, how will this spending help the vulnerable flourish? And then finally, generosity. Throughout the scriptures, we are repeatedly called to joyful generosity of our time, our talent, our treasure. And generosity, it, it, it lurks like a machete. This is the image I had in my mind this week. Generosity is like a machete that cuts the vines that bind us to greed. Giving of our money and our wealth loosens idolatry's grip on us and releases great joy in us. Jesus said it is more blessed to give than receive, and the Bible instructs us to make our local church family that we are part of the primary place of our financial giving. And I say that not because we as a church want something from you, but because we want something for you, the idol-killing, soul-soothing, joy-releasing experience of living into God's design. So maybe even every day this week, just as a practice, could you each day this week say, I'm going to give away something. <laughs> maybe it's I just buy the coffee for the person in front of me in line, or I go through my closet and just get rid of a few coats that I'm not using and take them to the thrift store, whatever it might be. But can you try just to get in the practice of giving something away to strengthen that muscle and to open your hands to say, God, you fill these. I I don't fill them. I can open them because you fill them. Because here's the bottom line for us today. Our security is in a future feast, not in present pleasures. And the author of Hebrews, writing to Christians who had been persecuted, said this, you suffered along with those in prison and you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Why? Because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence it will be richly rewarded. The feast is coming. And let the feast sustain you as you wait. It is hard, it will be hard, but the feast is better. And Jesus is inviting you. Do you hear his invitation? And in the Lord's Supper, we do get a small foretaste of the meal that is to come. And we eat to refocus our hope on that meal and look at our true confidence.